This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Dr. Josh Woolley is an associate professor in residence in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF, as well as a staff psychiatrist in mental health at the San Francisco Veterans Affairs Medical Center. He's board certified in psychiatry by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He's the director of the Translational Psychedelic Research Program at UCSF, which brings together scientists and care providers across disciplines to understand the efficacy and mechanisms of psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, MDMA, and related compounds as treatments for neuropsychiatric disorders. Tonight, he'll be talking to us about psilocybin therapy, current challenges, future prospects. Thank you so much. Passing the baton to you. Yeah. So tonight I'm talking about uh, psychedelics and psilocybin in particular. First, I have some disclosures. Uh, I've been a site PI on a couple of sponsored studies. I've also um, a paid consultant for a couple of companies. Unfortunately for me, I don't have any equity in any psychedelic company. And I won't be talking about any research that's uh, directly supported by any of these companies tonight. So I'm a psychiatrist and I, I can say that we need new treatments. There isn't a single uh, disorder in psychiatry that we've cured, which is actually kind of surprising given how other branches of medicine have done. Um, many disorder diseases have been basically cured. Uh, and in psychiatry, not only have we not cured any disorders, we ha- still have disorders that have no effective pharmacological treatments. For example, eating disorders, um, personality disorders. And and then for the disorders that we do have eff- uh, tr- tr- effective treatments, they're insufficiently effective. Just to take one example, depression. This is, this is just one of the illnesses that we talk about in psychiatry, but it's a, a big one. It affects, it affects over 264 million people uh, across the world, and um, it's the leading cause of disability worldwide. It's, an, it's a leading cause. It's in the top 10, according to the WHO. It's the, mo- the most associated with suicide, and 800,000 deaths are due to suicide each year. And not only that, it, 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 depression can affect many different aspects of people's lives even when people don't commit suicide. Unfortunately, the treatments that we have for depression, one third of people will not respond, roughly. And the ones that we do, the treatments that we do have work through similar mechanisms. We, we've been you know, manipulating serotonin in various ways for a long time. And the treatments also have side effects, uh, sexual side effects, for example, with SSRIs. And most of the of big pharma has gotten out of... Uh, making drugs in the for, for the psychiatric illnesses. Uh, so we have not been getting lots of new drugs uh, like other branches of medicine. This is just one example, um, but this is true for many of our disorders. So we are in desperate need of new effective treatments. Some of you may remember this guy. This is a photo of Nixon signing the Controlled Substances Act in 1970. Now, before 1970, psychedelics were being studied across America 
as treatments of, of, in various ways. They were also being used for other things. Some of you may may remember that part. But this um, this law uh, basically started the war on drugs and ended abruptly research on psychedelics. Um, and there was basically a, a huge hiatus, a, a gap, uh, a dark a dark period where no progress was made with psychedelics. Um, but uh, things have changed over the last maybe 15 years, there has been um, a loosening, uh, an ability to study these things again. We at UCSF and other places like Hopkins and Imperial in the UK, NYU, many other places as well, have been able to do clinical studies with with these compounds again. Um, And there's been a a resurgence of interest and and a lot of excitement. So let me just tell you about psilocybin. So that's the one that has been studied the most. So psilocybin is the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms. There are, this is, you can see the mushroom down here on the right. There are, it's not just one kind of mushroom. It turns out there's like about, about 180 different related species of mushroom that contain psilocybin. We know that psilocybin gets metabolized to psilocin. So it gets broken down to a compound called psilocin and psilocin is the active ingredient, the active metabolite, excuse me. And we know that while psilocin has a complex pharmacology, it, it, it binds to many different receptors. We know that uh, it, through this particular kind of serotonin receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor, that's how what causes the psychedelic experience. And we know that because if you block that receptor with a drug that is an antagonist at that subtype of receptor, you can block the psychedelic effects. When people, when you take psilocybin at a, at a usual dose, it, you have effects that last about six hours. Um, this is convenient because it means that we can use it and within a have the whole experience be within a workday. Some other psychedelics that you may have heard of, like LSD, have a longer half-life, so that would be a much longer um, period. It, it's a sympathomimetic which means that when you take it, people's heart heart rate and blood pressure go up. And this is the part that, you know, it kind of, you know, we, we, we make it seem so sterile with our scientific language. It has potent effects on perception, mood, cognition, and behavior. That's, that's what we mean by psychedelic effects or the trip, if you will. I'll get more into that in a second, but some people describe it like dreaming while awake. And this is the compound that has been studied the most in this modern era of psychedelics. And there are a growing number of trials suggesting that it can be helpful for several different disorders. I'm only going to be talking about some tonight. I just want to take a moment to talk about this art here in the top right-hand corner here. This is, this is um, from a cave, a cave painting in um, to Algeria, I believe, uh, called the Beheaded Shaman. And you can see that along this um, figure's skin, what looks like mushrooms, and then both fists are f- full of mushrooms. And then the head is replaced with a bee, hence the beheaded shaman. Um, and those mushrooms that are depicted look a lot like the mushroom that we're talking about. And it is pretty trippy. And so people have taken this as one of the very first evidence that humans were interested in, in these psychedelic mushrooms. You know, this the point here is that People have been using psychedelics in very, for various 
purposes for thousands and thousands of years. There's a long tradition, uh, including with mushrooms. And I think that's something really important to keep in mind as we talk about these, uh, you know, bringing these into the Western um, medicine uh, framework. Okay, so that's what I was saying before about how we start with psilocybin, and then it gets broken down to psilocin, which is the active metabolite. And, and I, well, I'm not going to get too much into the chemistry, but I just want to show you, this is what serotonin looks like. And even for non-chemists, you can see they look pretty similar. So it's not a surprise that psilocybin is acting at serotonergic receptors. Another thing to keep in mind is that um, while I was talking about the mushrooms, and actually the vast majority of people who have used psilocybin did it by eating mushrooms, over 10% of Americans have, have tried the psychedelic. Um, in the trials, we're using synthetic psilocybin. So this is pure psilocybin that was made in a in a in a lab, um, and so it, you keep it in mind that this is like the difference between caffeine and coffee. I mean, coffee has caffeine is the part that gets people excited about coffee, but there are other things too, right? It's a whole experience as opposed to just having a caffeine pill. Okay, I said I was going to get more into this potent effects of on cognition, behavior, and thinking. So this is one way to try and capture. The um, the effects of psilocybin. What this, this what this graph shows is large number of healthy people were given increasing doses of psilocybin. You can see here the red, the green, and the brown sort of increasing doses, and then they filled out a detailed questionnaire about their experience that asked all sorts of questions, and then it's graphed on this thing's called a spider plot. Basically, the farther away on each axis. The dot is the higher the people rated that domain. So if you look here, um, these blue, like audiovisual synesthesia, that's you know seeing seeing sounds and hearing colors. That would be that's what synesthesia means. And you can see that um, as people had higher doses of psilocybin, they rated that more and more strongly. Elementary visual alterations is, you know, things like seeing squiggles or lines or dots. You can see that also is pretty common. Vivid, vivid imagery would be, you know, a fully formed thing like a dragon or something like that. And changed meaning of percepts. That really means that the things that you see or perceive, the, what it means to you is different. So like you see your hand and you're like, oh, this, this isn't just my hand, but this is the hand of all humanity or something like that. Um, and that's also a pretty common experience on psilocybin. People also have experiences of insightfulness, religious experience. This experience of unity is something that people talk a lot about. This is the, um, some people even describe it as a temporary disillusion of the self-other boundary, uh, becoming one with the universe or the uh, or nature or your fellow, your fellow man, sometimes people talk about. And then, of course, a blissful state. I think that's pretty clear. And then we can compare it to ketamine, which is ketamine is an anesthetic that we also use as an antidepressant. And you can see a ketamine doesn't have as much of the blue boxes, but has a lot more of the disembodiment. This is something that as a dissociative anesthetic and makes sense. This is people feeling detached from their body. Uh, but ketamine also has the experience of unity. Yeah, so this kind of gives you some sense of what the experience of being on a, a psilocybin is like. Another thing that people always ask me is, what about what about safety? Uh, you know, we did this before. 
you're going to, you know, everyone's going to take these drugs. Is it safe? Are they going to get addicted? Um, and I like to show this uh, graphic. So on the x-axis here, it's the, you can see the active dose divided by the lethal dose. So you want that number to be low because you want the dose that you use to get the effect that you want to be a lot smaller than the dose that will kill you. And then on the y-axis, what you can see is the dependence potential. What that means is how likely is someone to, de to develop dependence and start basically um, escalating their dose and take, trying to get more and more of the drug and becoming more and more focused on getting the drug. Um, and so it, the addiction would be another way of talking about that. And so you can see in the top right corner, we have the sort of bad boys of pharmacology. Right? Heroin is right up there where uh, if you if you try it, it has a very like you're very likely to to de develop dependence to it and want more and more of it and need more and more of it. Um, and the active dose over the lethal dose is not as different as one would like. And so it makes it easier to overdose. And I, you know, you, this is in the news is a huge thing. But you can notice there are a couple other players here, nicotine. Very uh, likely for people to, to dependence potential. Um, you know, the overdose risk is lower, but it's, it's not zero. And then alcohol. Right? I think alcohol is one that we're all familiar with. And you can also see here that, uh, you know, the drugs that are illegal are not, it's not related to exactly how dangerous they are. Right? And, you know, we have safe drug administration zones for alcohol in every town or almost every town across America with poorly trained, uh, you, know, disp you know, dispensers or you know, bartenders, right? Um, whereas psychedelics are in the bottom left corner here. So people uh, developing dependence for, for a psychedelic, sort of becoming, using it more and more, is vanishingly rare. It does occur, but uh, it's very, unlike, uh, very unusual. But mostly people... Uh, use them in a self-limited way. It's like once uh, every three months, a month, a year. Uh, and then the, the physio physiologically, they're very well tolerated. So even if you take a high dose, it, it won't kill you. That doesn't mean it's well tolerated psychologically, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but this is just a starting place for, for the dan danger of, 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 of using psychedelics. So another thing I want to get out get out in front of is about microdosing versus macrodosing. You may have heard about these different terms. They're in the public square or the zeitgeist at the moment. So microdosing, what that means is you, people are typically taking a subperceptual dose or or a low dose. I, I say micro because it's not micro in sort of a, a standard. Uh, Units, you know, it's not like a, like as opposed to like a nano dose or a kilo dose. It's it's more of a um, slang, if you will. Uh, but people typically take a low dose, and and when people do that, either they don't feel anything immediately, or they might feel something. So it's not totally subperceptual, but it's not psychedelic. It's not like all those experiences I was telling you about earlier. And when people do this microdosing, the Typically, what they're doing is they're using it maybe every three days. Uh, there does seem to be some traditional cultures that have used low doses of psychedelics, but it's a lot less common than the macrodosing. 
the sort of the modern practice started with this book from 2011, as opposed to you know macro dosing. That's what's been studied mostly in the trials. That's where people take a, a high dose, where where people you know trip or have a full psychedelic experience. And as I said earlier, when people do that, people are typically using using that every every month or more than every year. And that has a, a much stronger um, traditional uh, history uh, of, of use, probably for thousands of years. Let me talk about each of these separately. So for microdosing, there's a lot of talk about it helping people, but the, the, the evidence for that is pretty small. Basically, what happens is a lot of studies have said, okay, hey, are you, do you microdose? Oh, okay, well, tell us about your experience with it. And so it turns out that people who microdose um, say that it helps them. Uh, but of course, they know they're microdosing, and that's why they're doing it. So that doesn't tell us that much. Here you can just see that this is uh, self-reported anxiety, depression, and stress. And you can see the people who, who microdose rate themselves as lower on those things. That's a start. It would be, it would be you know, kind of concerning if it was the opposite. But um, it doesn't really prove it to us because the people believe in it and, the, and they you know, know what the study is about. Surprisingly, there have been no randomized controlled trials of microdosing, but there was this one amazing citizen science study I just want to take a moment to talk about. So what this study did was take advantage of the fact that microdosing is so popular and that people who microdose are... Um, pretty dedicated to the mission of trying to understand if it works. So they recruited people online where they said, hey, are you about to start microdosing? If so, why don't you participate in our study? And so people said, oh, okay. And then they, what they did is they using this very clever system of sending people envelopes and um, capsules that they could put their own drugs into. Uh, they were able to figure out a way to get people to blind themselves to their own drugs that they had at home. Let's think about that again. So people had like had had some they had some mushrooms at home and they're like I'm going to start microdosing with the mushrooms that I got on the black market and this researcher sends you an envelope and you take your mushrooms and you put them in the pills and then you do this like sort of rant, you know moving things around and you don't know if you're taking a placebo or an inactive capsule or you're taking the capsule that has your drugs in it. And um, and they did this. Uh, they, they managed to complete it. They had almost 200 people do it. And there's a major advantage of this, one being cost. This is much cheaper than re you know recruiting people and randomizing them, giving them drugs, and so on. And what you can see, they, they did three, group, three different groups. One was the placebo group. So if you're in the placebo group, you get inactive placebos the whole time. If you're in the half-half group, half the time you get um, placebo and half the time you get um, active. And then the microdosing group, you have uh, two weeks when you get active and two weeks when you, um, you get placebo. And what do they find? Well, this is a lot of lines. I'm, just, I'm sorry, it's a little bit busy. But basically, they what they found was that, yes, some People reported better well-being, better mindfulness, better life satisfaction, but they didn't really get separation between the groups. So the microdosing group is in red, 
And you can see that they, it doesn't really separate. It's not different than the other groups. Maybe cognition is different in that the microdosing group got better on cognition, but the other ones didn't. But actually, when they went back and they asked people, what drug did you think you were getting? It turned out that lots of people in the placebo group thought they were getting um, the active condition. Uh, and that explained the entirety of the effect. So if you, can, if you controlled for how many people basically got it wrong, they thought they were getting the active drug, the differences between groups went away. So in this study, it really suggests a lot of the benefits of microdosing are placebo. Placebo affects people's expectations. But wait a minute. These people didn't have a clinical disorder. These were just random people from the internet who were going to use microdosing. We know very little about them. They don't have a clear disorder. So what are you even trying to improve? So this is the summary, my, my limited summary on what's going on with microdosing. We don't have uh, clinical trial evidence. Positive expectations likely play a large role, but we haven't studied any clinical populations. In a healthy population, it's very difficult actually to show a benefit. And if you think about that for a second, it's just because what are you trying to improve in healthy people? And healthy people are usually healthy, right? So they, they have, they're usually pretty good at these different things that you're looking at. There's no clear deficit that you're trying to fix. And, you know, the fact whether or not it works in healthy people doesn't really tell us if it's going to be an antidepressant, for example. So I think there's a lot of work still to be done with microdosing. Uh, and I, th that will probably change in the next couple of years. Now going to macrodosing. So this is a tweet from um, 2021, actually, from a, a researcher from Hopkins. And this is, I, I like to show this because it, I think it really captures something about how modern psychedelic trials are done. I'll get into what, uh, that in a moment, but basically they are a combination treatment. So with microdosing, you can think of it as like, oh, you just take this drug every three days and it's a little bit like an SSRI or an antidepressant and that you kind of feel better. Now, whether or not you really feel better more than you would if you were just taking sugar, it's still an open question. But with macrodosing, this higher dosing, it's not like that. The way it works is like this. So <clears throat> these are pictures from, from actually UCSF. So the patient will come in and meet with a psychotherapist for usually about six hours spread out over a couple sessions to do what's called preparation psychotherapy. And say this person, is, say it's a depression trial. They will, you know, um, build trust and rapport, talking about their history of depression. There'll be a fair amount of psychoeducation where the therapist will um, tell the patient what they might experience when they take psilocybin. They, uh, there's also practical things like here's, you know, here's the bathroom and here's the couch and sort of, you know, so nothing is surprising on the dosing day. Then the patient uh, will come in on the dosing day, the psilocybin session, their therapist will be there and uh, they take the drug and then they spend the whole day in the, in the lab in the, in the, in this room. And they're encouraged to listen to music and have eye shades and they uh, lay down and go into their experience. But the therapist is there the whole day with them uh, in case they want to talk about anything or they need you know, reassurance. Um, and you can see this is the blood pressure monitor. So we, you know, we monitor blood pressure 
and to make sure everything's okay. Then at the, as I said, it lasts about six hours. The person comes out of that. Uh, we clear them for them to go home. It's like when you go to the dentist and you have a you know, big surgery or a colonoscopy, someone has to come pick you up and go home. We don't let people just drive home afterwards. Uh, and then they go home. And then uh, the next morning, and then a couple more sessions, about six hours again, they have what's called integration psychotherapy. And um, integration psychotherapy is where um, the patient will talk about what they experienced on the psychedelic and um, figure out how they want to integrate that into their lives and other changes that they might want to make. Currently, uh, the approach that people use the psychedelic psychotherapy is what I described. So built, building rapport and trust is, is critical. It's a pretty non-directive, supportive approach. It's not like homework or a worksheet. There is this idea of sort of setting aside expectations and being open to unusual experiences, which the psychedelic experience is. And then another interesting element is music. So there's almost always, uh, no, I would say always, there is music during the psycho during the dosing session, um, and the patients and therapists all swear that it's incredibly important, which I think is pretty interesting. So now I have a video. So this is a video, um, not not from us. This is a video from my life. I'm a patient who participated in a study at Hopkins. He uh, he has prostate cancer, and he he was um, had a shortened lifespan because of that. And he participated in a trial where he got psilocybin using that same model that I'm talking about. And he's a, he, he talks a little bit about what he experienced. I would like to live my life fully. I'd like to be fully alive. I was greatly enjoying beautiful music, high quality beautiful music playing in my ears, lying in the sofa, my two guides sitting there quietly, supportively. And what it led to was a reawakening what it felt like when my first daughter, Tanya, died. And the feelings just came like I was completely into the strongest sense of despair and loss that I had after she died and I howled and I felt comforted that my guides will they won't come and comfort me they won't stop me they'll let me go into it and I did and um, that sort of almost 30 years of not denial, but putting it down, suppressing how that felt. Just a couple of elements there that, that we often see. This is the memories that come back, these intense feelings, challenge, um, in, engaging with traumatic memories. We've heard this several times now where people say, wasn't that I was in denial, but I just had pushed it down, and then somehow it comes up. The intense emotions that he's describing, um, and then the ability to somehow tolerate them. And that was very liberating. After that, the experience with the drug, it became even more potent. Everything was animate. 
um, like sitting here, all us around us, it's, it's animate. Celebrating being part of this incredible living experience that we have. Humans are not separate from nature. And how, whatever happens to my bodily parts, they will go back into nature too. You know, they'll be recycled. The result of those trips and the ability for me to experience more of myself and more of what life is, to become fully alive as in ecstatic, <laughs> um, very much enables me to go forward. I've been to periods where I'm not down on myself or feeling I'm not good enough and much more tuned into the overall experience of what life is. Psilocybin, in the context of having support readily at hand, support that you trust, very important. So, yeah, so just, again, some elements there were talking about how he felt relief, he felt connected to the universe and nature afterwards, and felt that he could enjoy things again. Um, these are all themes that we hear uh, a lot um, in, in other studies as well. So I want to tell you about one of the, this is the first study we did at UCSF that was, um, you know, um, a couple of years ago now. If you look at the picture on the left there, that's um, that's the gay men's uh, choir. And uh, the people in white represent original members. People in black turned away from the camera represent people who died uh, due to the AIDS epidemic. So you can just, just a snapshot of what AIDS uh, did to a particular community uh, in, in the Bay Area. And so we wanted to um, see if we could use psilocybin therapy to help uh, people who, have, who had been through this. So people who, who were diagnosed with HIV before 1996, for them it was a death sentence because, uh, well, they, at that point they knew what it was and they all their friends or many of their friends had already died from it. And it wasn't just any death sentence. It was also a stigmatized death sentence. It was, uh, you know, gay men's disease or you know, like that. So it was, um, uh, it was a really terrible time, of course. And yet for some people who got diagnosed with before 1996, uh, they didn't die either because they were genetic non-progressors. They had a genetic abnormality, not abnormality, a genetic variant that made HIV, um, go slower in them, or they uh, they survived long enough for the medications to come along. Um, and the medications have really changed what HIV, the, the nature of the illness. So nowadays, it's much more like a chronic illness that people manage, and life expectancy actually isn't any shorter if you have HIV, if you take your medications. But for these people who who went through this, many of them have a lot of complex sequelae, psychiatric sequelae from this. And as our first study at UCSF, we wanted to see if we could we could help them with, with psychedelics. Both because, you know, the AIDS, AIDS epidemic is, is near and due to our heart at UCSF, but also because we saw this as a model of people surviving a horrible thing, um, like a natural disaster or um, environmental disaster or a war where not everyone survives, so some people do, and they have to live with that. Or maybe even a global pandemic. 
That'll be another example. And also, we've, we thought this was a, a, a good place to start because just by the demographics, the people were older and they had other medical comorbidities, including HIV, and there were other medications. So we thought this was a place where we could leverage UCSF's you know, expertise in, in medical care, sort of understand who we could treat with these drugs. The other thing that we did in the study that was novel was we um, we used a group therapy format. So I told you, I told you about um, you know how other trials have done it, uh, other studies have done it, where you have this one therapist, or typically it's even two therapists and the patient. Well, we thought, why not have some of the preparation and the integration done as a group? If we're trying to help people not be alone. Why make them go outside of the treatment? Because actually, it turns out in that Hopkins study that 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 um, like I was in, we were, we we had heard that many of the patients really wanted to speak to other patients in the study, which I could tell you as a, a pharmacological researcher is is very rare. Um, you know, no one in a Prozac trial is like, oh, I really want to speak to the other people who got Prozac. Also, psychedelics are often used in group settings um, in traditional in indigenous practice. And we were also concerned about the cost of the therapist. So group therapy has a long tradition of being used to try to be a more efficient way of delivering psychotherapy. So there are a bunch of reasons why we wanted to do it that way. So this is our study design. We was an open label study, so there was no control group. We did um, the preparation of the integration as a group. We ran. We had eighteen people in three groups of six, and demoralization was our primary endpoint outcome. Demoralization, you can think of it as similar to depression, but it's distinct. It comes from the palliative care world. It's um, really a loss of purpose and meaning in life. So that was our, that's what we were focusing on. And you can see here that you know there were four group sessions for prep. Then we dosed individually. Everyone had a single psilocybin uh, dose on different days because we didn't have enough space. So we couldn't dose them all at once. And then they got back together for um, more sessions as a group for integration. And then we followed people out to three months after the end of the psychotherapy. And what do we see? Well, this is demoralization. As I said, the primary out- outcome, you can see that it's high. Then we give the psilocybin and it goes way down. And then it st- stays low for a long time, three months after the last psychotherapy session, which is almost four months after the dosing. This is consistent with other studies, open label, but still exciting. The other thing we were wondering about is, well, um, what about how challenging the experience was? So what one thing we did is we had people fill out this challenging experience questionnaire. And the scores on this goes from zero to 140, with 140 being the most challenging experience you can imagine. This questionnaire has questions like, I felt like I was going insane, or I felt like I was going to die. You know, pretty scary things. And you can see that some of the people had very high scores on this. However, if you ask people how um, beneficial or harmful they thought it was, you can see that um, everyone thought it was very beneficial, or almost everyone, and nobody thought it was harmful. And how challenging their experience was, was not related to um, how beneficial or harmful they thought it was. I can also tell you that um, how tra- challenging they thought it was also was not related to how much better they got. Everyone got better. It didn't. 
challenging experiences or not, that didn't relate to whether or not people got better. And this fits with a larger body of research that, you know, what people think of as bad trips. Um, in the setting, in the, in the setting where you have this therapist and you have all this um, support around the experience, bad trips can still be therapeutic. I, I, you know, I think that's another reason why to have the, the therapist is so important. Okay. So now we said that there were a lot of clinical trials out there that were supporting the use of psilocybin. So here's, here's one. This is um, a recent study that came out in New England Journal of Medicine. This was a large multi-center study. I wasn't involved in the study. And uh, what you can see on the y-axis here, this is the change in your madras, which is a measure of depression. So the bigger, the, the farther you go down on this, the more, on average, that group uh, had improvements in their depression. And there are three groups here. So what they did is they took people with depression and they randomized them to get one milligram of psilocybin, which is a negligible amount. You won't feel one milligram. So they're using that as their placebo. 10 milligrams of psilocybin, which is a medium dose where you might feel something, or 25 milligrams of psilocybin, which is the full dose, which is the dose that the man in the video was talking about. That's the dose where people have a sort of dissolution of the self-other boundary. And in this study, they, they got the prep preparation and the integration like I described. And what you can see is that after the single dose of psilocybin, there was this large decrease in depression and much bigger in the 25 milligram dose versus the one milligram dose. So this is a reason that people are excited about psychedelics or psilocybin is that you can get these rapid improvements in depression. The other thing that you can notice is that this improvement in depression lasts for many weeks. This, the, the, the difference actually in this study continued out to nine weeks. Actually, I think it was nine weeks. And wasn't was barely was not really present at twelve weeks, but other studies have found separation, more improvement in depression in the active condition, out to three months or six months even, and so that that's why people are excited that you have this rapid improvement that's also durable after a single treatment. That's very exciting and true, and you don't have to take the drug every day. You don't have to do it over and over again. You do it once. And people feel better for a long time. So I think that's 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 where a lot of the you know excitement around this these drugs are coming from. But the excitement is also a challenge because there's a lot of hype and hope. So the hope is totally understandable. As I told you, the treatments that we have are not that effective. There are a lot of people who are suffering. Um, and uh, they, everyone is desperate for new treatments. So people have a lot of hope that psychedelics are going to be that. On the other hand, there's a lot of um, stuff in the zeitgeist about how effective they can be. So here's, here's a quote from Michael Pollan from his book, uh, you know, How to Change Your Mind, which really kind of shifted the zeitgeist um, a couple of years ago where he's talking about when he interviewed scientists. He said, to solve the environmental crisis, to end war, bring peace, this is not what you expect to hear from scientists who are always very careful about their claims. So he said that there were scientists who were saying maybe these drugs could end war. Now, I'm not saying that they won't. It's just 
that's a that's a pretty big thing. Like you know, like you don't do you can't do a clinical trial on that. You know, like <laughs> the FDA will give you an approval for war ending. And then here's a quote from um, Rick Doblin, the CEO of Maps, which is the nonprofit pharmaceutical company that's um, that's working on um, bringing MDMA therapy to to through uh, FDA approval. And he said, I believe that fully globalized access to MDMA-assisted therapy can lead to a world of net zero trauma by 2070. And I'm not saying that that's not true. Um, and I'm not, I'm not even sure exactly what a net zero trauma means, but I think it means that we would be curing trauma as fast as we were creating it, so that there would be net zero. That's a pretty bold statement. Unfortunately, there's a lot of trauma in the world. These are the kind of... Um, Kind of that's how much hope there is for these these compounds. I, I think one way that this is one thing that's related to that is when people use these drugs. So this is a, from that Hopkins study. If you ask them how personally meaningful was your psychedelic experience, was your experience? Sorry, don't say psychedelic. Just say, was the experience. People say, uh, and in this, stu- this study they also used a low dose, so a negligible dose. I think it was one milligram versus a high dose, which is twenty five. 62% of the people said that their high-dose experience was among the top five most meaningful experiences of their entire life, which, you know, is, I think, a really interesting finding. In, like, Prozac trials, we never even asked this because we don't we assume it won't be. Um, but personally meaningful. Something about the psychedelic experience is very personally meaningful. So I think that adds to this, that people, that experiences really matter to people. And that's probably a good thing for a treatment, but it does make studying it hard. And so we did one thing to try and get at this. Uh, we we had the opportunity to, um, to, to have the therapists in a trial complete our anonymous survey where we asked them all a bunch of questions. And we asked them, one thing we asked them was about their own psychedelic use. It turns out most of them had used psychedelics, not so surprising, um, and almost all of them had used psilocybin in particular, and the median last use was in the last six to twelve months. I can tell you there was rage, but some of the people had used a lot of psychedelics, like over eleven different kinds of psychedelic and over fifty lifetime uses. So there, there were some people who had a lot of experience um, with psychedelics, as in the, the people who were the therapists in the trial. Again, not a bad thing, just unusual for a pharmacological trial. We also asked people, the facilitators, compared to placebo, how effective do you believe psilocybin will be, psilocybin therapy will be for treating depression? And you could see that they all thought it was going to be more effective. And most of them thought it was going to be substantially more effective than placebo. Now, this is interesting. Um, If you were to do, well, when people do psychotherapy trials, like with cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, most of the therapists probably would think this, that their their cognitive behavioral therapy is going to be more effective. So it's very common for psychotherapists to believe in the psychotherapy they deliver. But for a pharmaco- pharmacology trial, I don't think it's as common. I mean, maybe the researcher is like, yes, I really think this you know, new SSRI is going to work. But all the people working on the study, I don't know what they would think. We don't usually ask this. But you can see here that this is, uh, this, at least in this subset of facilitators, there were strong positive ideas about what the psychedelics uh, could do. And why does this all matter? 
well, what people think about how the treatment is going to affect them, what we call expectations, can have powerful effects on, on what happens to them. Sometimes we call these placebo effects. So this is just an example from the pain literature where this has been studied really well. What they did here is they gave people remifentanil, which is a, is a very potent opioid. So it's, a, you know, it's, it's like fentanyl. It's even more potent, I think. And they studied the effects of it on pain intensity. But the manipulation was they told people that this is going to work really well. They manipulated the expectancy. They're like, oh, this is a super effective analgesic. That's the positive expectancy. Or they said, oh, no, this isn't going to work that well. This is not a good analgesic. That's the negative expectancy. Or no expectancy. They didn't manipulate. And baseline is where people started. And so what you can see is that if you give remifentanil with no expectancy, you see a decrease in pain intensity. That's good. That's what you expect. If you tell people it's going to be an effective um, analgesic, you double the effects. You see, this is much lower than that. So you're getting extra effect on the pain. And if you tell people that it isn't going to help them, so you're giving them remifentanil, you're saying this is not going to help your pain, you completely block the analgesic effects of the remifentanil. So what this study is doing is manipulating people's expectations about what will happen psychologically, just with talking. And this had very potent effects on the pain. So here we have this combination where we have people coming into the trials who really believe that the psychedelics are going to cure them. I've had people say to me, I know this is going to work for me, or this is the only thing that will work. And you have a situation where the facilitators and the other people who are in the study also really believe that. That's a good thing if you want big treatment outcomes, but it's a challenge if you're trying to show a drug-specific effect. And this is, brings us to the last thing. This is, this is the only meme I've ever made in that we t often talk about masking or the double-blind studies. Now, what is a double-blind study? A double-blind study is where both the patient and the provider doesn't know which treatment the person got, right? Double, two of us. And why do we do that? Well, we do that because of the effects I was just telling you about, about expectation. You, you, keep, you keep the patient unsure about which treatment they got so that their expectations can affect their outcomes. And you keep the, the researcher or the assessor or the therapist um, uncertain so that their expectations can affect the person. Because it turns out that it's easy to unconsciously um, communicate these things to people. For example, if you try to give someone a placebo, uh, if, you, if you give someone a placebo injection, but you know that it's placebo, it's a lot less effective than if you give them a placebo injection and you don't know that it's a placebo. So we're communicating things in all sorts of ways. And so this meme uh, is, is kind of pointing out that in, in many clinical trials, we talk about double blind, I put it in quotation marks, but we don't actually ask the participants what they thought they got. Because if you do, certainly, uh, so this has been shown in, in antidepressant trials, often people do know what arm they're in, which is a big problem, you know? And how do people tell? Well, a couple of reasons why. One is that they can tell about side effects. 
Another is that if they get better, they say that they got the active. Now that's kind of interesting because that's that suggests that well, we don't want to control for that. But also there are the acute subjective effects. And so you could think with psychedelics, it's actually very difficult. No one's figured out a way to have to confuse people about whether or not they had a full psychedelic experience. It's kind of hard to imagine. So we've had quote unquote double blind trials. Like we didn't tell people like this is psilocybin, but in all the trials, people knew if they tripped or not. This is just, and so, so, and then that's a, an issue because we could have um, inflated effects item. So here's another study that was recently done by an excellent group in Switzerland. This is a similar patient group uh, to the one I showed you before. This is a major depressive disorder versus treatment resistant depression. And again, it's the MADRIS, which is this measure of depression. Now, instead of a change score, they just have the raw scores here. And you can see, oh, and in this study, they use 15 milligrams, not the 25 milligrams that the other study did, so a lower dose. But everything else is pretty similar. Preparation, dosing, integration. Single dose. Yeah. And you can see that in this study, the people got who got 15 milligrams of psilocybin have this big decrease that continues for at least two weeks. And if you look here, it looks like about 15 points, right? Yeah, so we have about a 15-point improvement with the 15 milligrams versus placebo. Now, this is an inert placebo. Now, you go to that study I showed you before, and you can see the difference between this and that is about, you know, less lousy. What is it? Nine minus, it's like eight. It was even less effective, even though this is more psilocybin. But overall, it's about a 15-point decrease from here to here. So look, from here to here, 15 points. From here to here, 15 points. So the same size improvement. But the, um, and then you have this 10 milligram dose, which has a smaller one in this study. But in 15, that's, that's the one that had the big one. So the point I'm trying to make is in this two-arm study here where people know, oh, my options are either I'm going to get psilocybin or placebo, that probably contributed to the thing where, the, where if they felt anything psychedelic, they're like, oh, I'm in the active arm, and they got better. Whereas in this study, where people are like, oh, I could get 1, 10, or 25, and I know that 25 is the quote-unquote right dose, the one that works, because there have been other studies for 25, many people probably could guess that they were in the 25 arm, and they're the ones who got better. Now, this study, actually both studies, didn't actually ask people what they thought they got. So we don't really know. But I think this is a really important thing for the field. Just putting it all together, we have this hype and hope. It's really intense. People have these very strong positive expectancies about the treatment. We can't mask so people can really tell which arm of the study they're in. All of this contributes to inflected, infl inflated effect sizes. We have some ideas about how to solve this, but... It's a very challenging thing. I'm going to talk about one other topic that, that we've been working on, which is kind of shifting gears. What about psilocybin and mania or psychosis? Does that, is, that a, is that a concern? And so this is a really complicated question because uh, there are anecdotes. People have said, oh, people can become manic or psychotic after using a psychedelic, but... 
it, it was so politicized and and there's such so much hype both ways, it's hard to get a straight answer. And actually, in all of the modern clinical trials with psilocybin, you know, there haven't been any trials in people with bipolar. And actually, most of the trials have excluded people, not allowed people to be in the trial if they had a family history of bipolar, which is pretty unusual if you think about it. Um, there aren't other places in medicine, really, where we say, oh, if you have a family history of this thing, you can't get this treatment. There are, uh, there's at least one in anesthesia with malignant hyperthermia, but uh, I can't think of one in psychiatry. And the reason they did that is that people were concerned about this, even though the actual evidence for it was small. But, you know, causing someone to have bipolar would be a really bad outcome. So people were being extra cautious. So we started by reviewing literature. It's always a good place to start. And we did a systematic review looking for um, any um, case case studies that would describe this. And we found um, we found at least we found four cases of someone who did not have bipolar disorder, who took a psychedelic without other drugs and developed mania. And one of these cases is, is this one, 21 year old woman hospitalized 36 hours after using psilocybin. She had irritability, pressured speech, decreased need for sleep, paranoia and delusion, which is a classic presentation of mania. She had a, she has a family history of bipolar. Someone in her family has bipolar. She was treated with drugs that we typically use for bipolar successfully. And then months later, she had a what's called a mixed episode. It's another kind of manic episode that was unrelated to psychedelic use. So now what this case is describing is someone who was healthy, used a psychedelic, and now seems to have bipolar, which is very concerning. Now, would she have developed bipolar anyway? Impossible to know. Uh, and so this is this kind of highlights the challenge uh, in the field. So the next thing we did was uh, we said, oh, okay, well, um, there are a lot of people with bipolar in the world, and they probably have used psychedelics. Why don't we ask them? So we did this international survey. This is a map of where all the people who completed the survey were. Darker reds are more people in that country. So most of the people from North America, but you can see people were all over. Um, and we asked them a whole bunch of things about what happens when they use psilocybin. We had over 500 people. Many of the people said that they have used psilocybin to try and treat their mental health. About a third of them said that they had worsening or new symptoms immediately or up to 14 days after using psilocybin with manic symptoms and insomnia being the most common. So that's pretty concerning. 4% said they even needed to use uh, the, the psilocybin built them to need emergency medical services, including psychiatric hospitalization. Also very, very concerning. On the other hand, everybody rated the harmfulness of psilocybin as, as low and the perceived helpfulness as high. Even the people who had worsening symptoms or uh, who needed emergency medical services. Here, are just uh, the other thing we did is we 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 had an open ended question at the end. We said, "Oh, is there anything you want to tell us?" And usually, when you do that, people complain. <laughs> but in our study, they told us about all these positive things. So here's just an example of one of the health benefits people describe. When I'm feeling the negative effects of my bipolar two disorder, I can sometimes put myself in the same headspace I was 
in when I took psilocybin and it helps me calm down and put things in perspective. Okay, you, you can read it because I haven't took a drink. Well, I think this one here really smokes us. Some of the best growth in my life and also the worst experiences of my life really shows you this dual-edged nature of this. We then did follow-up in-depth inter interviews and basically found the same thing. People say, oh, it helps me. It helps my depression. lifts my mood. But it makes me so I can't fall asleep. And this one person said, it, uh, the only time, the only time I go into a full-blown manic episode is when I've done psychedelics. It unlocks it for me. So very concerning. So putting it together, um, I didn't say this, but bipolar depression is a big problem and we don't have good treatments. And so we need new treatments. Psilocybin therapy has significant potential. And for some people and some disorders, people can have transformative change and long-lasting benefits. But there are these challenges. So it's a combination treatment. So it's a, this psychotherapy and drug combination, which is new for the field. It's kind of a radically new approach that requires us to think about things in new ways. Um, it also has challenges from like a systems way, uh, point of view, like how would we even deliver it? How are we going to do that effectively? How can we regulate psychotherapy in a way where it's combined with a drug? Because we don't do that now. Psychotherapy is regulated one way and drugs are regulated another way. There's a lot of hype of hope, which is good in lots of ways, but also has challenges, especially because we can't, we haven't figured out how to effectively mask these trials and we need new approaches. Uh, I didn't get into those last things, but the higher risk population is what I did. So, you know, we are now doing a trial in bi bipolar depression, but it's really focused on safety because we know so little. But we think that the cost benefit for doing a trial is, it makes sense. Um, uh, but, you know, we'll have to see how it turns out. Okay, so th this is just us. So I, I direct the, the Translational Psychedelic Research Program. We call ourselves Tripper. Cute, cute name. That's our website. And then uh, I can just tell you that we're doing a whole bunch of trials. I can't tell you about any of the data yet because it's not, not finished, but we're doing a trial of depression, anxiety, and Parkinson's disease. We're doing bipolar 2 depression. We're doing a study in chronic low back pain. We're ramping up to do a study of methamphetamine use disorder, as well as anorexia in young adults, so 18 to 25-year-olds. Also doing a study of psilocin versus psilocybin, as well as uh, botanically sourced DMT and hormonal alkaloids in a pill. And we are looking at several different uh, possible mechanisms, but um, in inflammation is one that we're particularly interested in. And here are all the people that make it possible. The first question is, what is the effect on the heart? I see that. Um, so the effect is, well, so when we talk about macro dosing so this is like you have to take one large dose when you do it that way people's blood pressure goes up temporarily and the heart rate goes up so it it's um yeah it's a sympathomimetic so people you know it's like a yeah your heart goes faster and you have increasing blood pressure usually it's not an issue but we we make sure that people don't have um high blood pressure beforehand so people have to have their blood pressure under control and then it's, you know, it's kind of like um, a hard workout a little bit. <laughs> um, so it, it's very well tolerated. When people do it as microdosing, now this has not been studied as much, um, 
because there haven't been studies of it, there is this concern about um, what uh, this, these heart valve issues. Uh, there's a, there was a drug called fenfen, uh, fenfluramine, and then I forget what the other fen was, but one of them that uh, had effects on the a different serotonin receptor, the 2B receptor. And that's why fenfen was actually brought, taken away from the market because some people developed these problems on their valves and their heart. So there is this theoretical concern that psilocybin and other psychedelics actually do have activity at the 5-HT2B receptor. And so if you were taking them all the time, like you do with microdosing, maybe that would cause valve problems. Hmm. It hasn't been described. There aren't examples of it, but it's it's something that people are concerned about um, and might be why there haven't been a lot of tri- microdosing trials. Um, but many people are doing this out in the world and we would hear about it if there was a case, I think, but you never know. <laughs> so those are the two. How about, there's a, I'm trying to see what questions can be also grouped, but is it safe to use psilocybin if there's a family history of schizophrenia? That's a great question. I would love to know the answer. I can tell you that, um, every modern study, every modern study, uh, except for our bipolar study, has excluded people who have a first-degree relative with schizophrenia. Now, if you think about that for a second, a first-degree relative, that's a mother or father or sibling. But it's kind of weird, right? Because suppose you have one sibling or no siblings, or you have like 10 siblings, right? <laughs> like it, it's not a very, it's a very coarse thing because, or if you're adopted, you don't know any of your siblings. So people are using that as sort of a, um, uh, what's a, a hack or a rule of thumb for genetic risk is what they're trying to do. And yet, you know, we don't know exactly what the risk is in people like that. I can tell you that the risk of developing psychosis or mania after using psilocybin is probably very low in general, but it's not zero because we can find these cases where it's happened. Mm-hmm. And we really don't know what that risk is as it's really based on these anecdotal reports. But that doesn't mean it's not significant. I mean, it's a really bad outcome. <laughs> it's developed schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very difficult thing to study because it's a, it's a low probability event that is it's a complex thing that involves genetics and environment and what people are going through. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I would answer your question. So I can't say yes or no. I would just say, you know, beware, <laughs> be cautious. I think there's a couple of folks asking about psilocybin's research and looking at things like anxiety and rumination. Another attendee is asking about PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm also just curious if you have thoughts on resources, if people are interested in there's good landing spots for people that want to kind of look at these different mental health diagnoses and what there is out there with psychedelic I, research. So, um, so I can, so I don't know what, what the best um, resource would be. It's a good question. I think it's, it's an evolving field. Um, most of the studies have been in end of life anxiety. So there've been a handful of really good studies in that space and then depression, mm-hmm. mostly just because depression is the most common and the pharmaceutical companies are like, we're going to go for that, and let's go in. 
Um, there have been, uh, and, and then in those studies, people also measure anxiety and those go down. There have been also some studies in substance use disorders. So alcohol and nicotine have been studied the most. Um, and those also show promising effects. There's been a small study in OCD. There was, uh, let's see, there was a study in social anxiety and people with autism. I think that, that was also promising. So, you know, um, I'm probably forgetting some at the moment, but, the, but you know, there's, there's studies that are happening and there are more and more studies happening all the time. Anxiety by itself, so anxiety disorder, like generalized anxiety disorder, I don't think has been studied yet, though people talk about it, and I suspect it would work. PTSD um, is something that we would really like to do. In, in our HIV study that I told you about, some of the people did have high PTSD symptoms, and those symptoms got better. But there actually hasn't been a trial on PTSD, which is a little surprising. I suspect it's because um, MDMA therapy has had a head start and was really only focused on PTSD. So they've kind of um, captured a lot of the attention. But I suspect the psilocybin therapy will probably also be effective for PTSD. Um, but but uh, it hasn't been studied yet. So this it's so interesting. I'm looking at this attendee's question, and I had similar a similar question. It seems the single dose of psilocybin can have a long term positive effect. Why? How is that possible? <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. Right. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the big question. Um, like why? Yeah, I, I said I showed you how it's done and all the things, but I kind of skipped over that. <laughs> Silly. Um, I would say, because we don't know. We don't know why or how. I, I can tell you our working model. We, we know that in animals, in animal models, and if you study this in like a dish or an animal, that psychedelics induce neuroplasticity. Now that's kind of a broad term. It can mean a lot of things. But, but practically, if you put psilocybin like in a dish with a neuron, the axons will sprout, sprout all, these synapse, all these spines, like the outgrowths. Like it's very prolific. And you can show that it actually goes on to form new, new synapses um, in, a, in, a, in a full animal, you know, a, a living animal. And, uh, you know, depression in particular is associated with decreases in, in synapse formation and the sort of loss of synapses. So, you know, decreased neuroplasticity. Um, and so what people think, what I, well, the working model is that somehow taking a psychedelic induces this like plastic state hmm. clinically people will talk about an afterglow they feel different for like the week after one of these high dose experiences and we think that that's why the psychotherapy is so important i didn't really even talk about why it is kind of hinted at it we think that the psychotherapy is important for two reasons one is safety and i did talk about that 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 you know using high doses like the, the dose that we use clinically is a very high dose Using that by yourself, sometimes people freak out or have challenging experiences that become bad trips because they, they can't manage it on their own. So I think that's really important. But we also think that the psychotherapy is um, somehow getting in there and having more effects on helping people change. And why do we think that? Well, one thing is that there's this paradox. I've talked about, oh, psychedelics are so good, blah, blah, blah. But like... Millions and millions of people use psych have used psychedelics. Well, as I said, over 10% of Americans have tried it. The number is going up all the time. You go to raves or 
you know, Burning Man, and they're very popular. <laughs> but not all those people, you know, stop using drugs and have their depression and anxiety cured. And there is even some evidence. Now, this is again subject to, you know, so self-report anecdotal thing that if when people are using it at a rave, they feel good for a while, like days, and they feel like, oh, everything's possible, but it kind of fades. It doesn't last in this way. So we think, I think if you push most psychedelic researchers, that there's something that's going on there about this combination of the environment and the, and the drug. <laughs> now, I could be wrong about that. I, you know, there are animals. Uh, the counter argument would be that animals seem to have long-lasting antidepressant effects after psychedelics. You give a single dose of a, a psychedelic and in certain animal models, you can get these long-lasting effects that de- that look like antidepressant effects. Now, the the mouse or the rat can't tell you that they're not sad, or you know, so they're the, the, the models are how I put it. They're just models of depression, but still, you can find effects on the behavioral outputs in the rat like a month later after a treatment. And a month for a rat is like in a lifetime. So and nobody's shaping the experience that the rat goes through. You know, mm-hmm. No one's doing the prep and integration. So I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's only for safety. And maybe actually, but, but I, I still think all these people are using psychedelics out in the world and they're not all cured. It, it it's an unclear place. But on the other hand, um, we know that you can have long-term effects after using a drug. Ketamine, we use ketamine as an antidepressant now, and it's cleared from the body within hours, but the effects last for at least days or a week in, the, in depression. That's pretty compellingly shown. So it's not impossible that it can last a long time. It's just surprising. <laughs> what I can tell you uh, clinically, or sort of the patients say, is they will say, oh, I had a realization that I don't need to do that thing anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, sometimes it's, it, I mean, I laugh because it's like, right, yeah. Like, like I met a guy, uh, I was giving one of these talks to the NIH and it was open to the public and someone came and they're like, oh, I was a participant in the alcohol study and we were debating about the subjective experience. And I said, oh, what about, was your subjective experience important? And he said, well, I saw an alcohol bottle in the desert and the alcohol bottle dissolved, and I knew I would never drink alcohol again. And you're like, okay. <laughs> you're like, yeah. And he's like, it was incredibly powerful. And you're like, yeah. okay. But I, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's good. Or, or patients, I've heard people say things like, I realized I really couldn't. I had to stop smoking. Mm-hmm. Which. Right. It's like, it's like, it just has a weightiness to it. Yeah. Even, you know, or, or patients will say things like, I was able to forgive myself for this thing or that person or, or something, things that people knew they had to do, but couldn't. And then they could. I mean, that's a little hand wavy, I know, but, but that's what seems to happen. I'm curious as you're talking about the lasting effects in animals and the examples of the mice and the rats, if 
they're much better at having beginners' minds than us humans. <laughs> true. They don't. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good idea. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's right. I mean, they don't they have a lot more baggage. <laughs> yeah, right. They, they they're like, oh, what's happening now? What's happening now? They don't. What's next? Right. What's next? And they, maybe that's interesting. I, actually, I, that's a really interesting idea. I've never heard anyone put it that way. Because like they they start fresh and maybe it resets them. Yes, every day is a new day. You know, it's interesting. I feel like some of the critiques I've heard of kind of the synthetic use of psychedelics and then this kind of quote clinical setting versus people doing it indigenously or in community with natural substances. I don't even really know what my question is, but just if you can kind of speak to those are really different experiences. Mm. Yeah. you know, I, I'm just, I'm curious. Yeah. I know obviously we need control environments to collect data. Like that's important, but it really kind of potentially strips away a lot of the meaning that people maybe are looking for or coming to in the experience. Um, so I'm curious what you think. I think part of my question is like, you know, once we have data and we know these are good doses and this is what it's helpful for. Like, is it going to move back out of the clinical setting so that it is more of like a, a a nice, you know, this, that setting is really attended to for. Right. Well, so a couple of things. First thing I would say is in our, in the clinical setting, this, the setting is really attended to. So the therapists and the dosing room, a lot of attention is put to that. And, and actually we don't do what indigenous groups do with setting, but we do our own thing. We do our Western medicine thing. Like mm-hmm. they need a doctor and there's like the hospital building and, you know, mm-hmm. we're measuring their symptoms. And we have a lot of mm, our rituals, if you will. Ceremony and ritual. <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, taking their right. blood pressure. You know, right. like this is a, a ritual. I mean, we need to know those numbers, but still we're also doing this thing. So, right. so the people actually in our studies find it very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and other people's studies too. So it's not that like it's mm-hmm. cold or indifferent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it's different and it's very costly for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's very specific and you have to get into the trial. Like, like, and it's, just, it's, a, it's a medical model. It's, it's something that insurance might theoretically pay for or the VA where I work. You know, mm-hmm. um, but these drugs or these compounds they have indigenous use, and they're part of uh, religious and so- cultural practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole separate thing. And then American society is also grappling with what we think about drug use in adults <laughs> in general. And like I showed you that thing about, you know, which drugs are the bad ones and the good ones. And, you know, why are certain ones illegal and other ones are not? Oh, a lot of it actually has to do with racism, I, I think, <laughs> which ones were targeted. And like we tried to make alcohol illegal and that didn't work out that well just because people refused, <laughs> white people, basically, <laughs> right? And so I, I am not, I'm not a politician and I, you know, I don't know, but society is trying to decide like, well, aren't we going to allow people to do psychedelics? And if we do that, how is that going to look? And like, what does that mean? In, pract- in practice, in California, at least, psilocybin is basically decriminalized. Like, I, I don't think people are going to jail for using um, psilocybin. I, again, I'm not a politician. But you can go to Oakland. There are stores. You can buy these things. Um, and most, the vast, vast majority of people 
use these drugs like with their friends or on their own and at parties, you know, not as therapeutics that, you know, for fun. <laughs> and um, I, uh, you know, I have my personal views on all of that, but what we're trying to do in the lab is to see, oh, what happens when we do it in this highly controlled way for sick people? Can we do it safely? That's a really important part for people who are, you know, have a serious problem like severe depression. You know, we're doing we did a study of people with Parkinson's, so you know they have neurodegeneration damage in their brain. They have a risk for psychosis as well. Like, will they become psychotic? You know, people with bipolar. Like, like will what will happen if we give a high dose? These are open questions. And then we're hope we're hoping that if it really is effective and safe, then it'll be a treatment that would be in our in our armamentarium. And as I said, insurance would pay for it, which I think is the way we can help the most people. Mm-hmm. But I really don't, and I think most psychedelic researchers would say, this is a whole parallel path from ayahuasca ceremonies in, in you know, the Amazon or ceremonial use of mushrooms or, um, you know, all the different religious practices. Like those should continue. And that's not, we, we owe a debt to them. Mm-hmm. Obviously you know, the technology, the knowledge about using these drugs. Um, we owe a debt and, and, and yet we don't want to interfere with it. It's like a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's how I feel about it. Uh, but you know, it's a complex issue colonization you know sort of stealing things different ideas like patents and and indigenous property Mm -hmm. so you know it's a big thing but but the one thing i i want to be really clear is we don't want to do cultural appropriation so like our dosing room has pictures of california nature (laughs) that's what we do and we're not like having buddhas or religious Mm -hmm. things Great. I really, I really appreciate that answer and your your thoughtfulness. Thank you. Um, there's a few other questions in the chat. I also wanted to ask quickly, this might be a large question, but um, I work with a lot of adolescents and young adults and parents mm. saying, what about this for an adolescent? What about this for... Right my kiddo who's gone through three or four antidepressants and they're still not getting better. And my response is, I don't have an answer for you. There's right. no data, but I'm just curious what you think about the adolescent and pediatric brain and this medicine. So this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, so um, my collaborator, uh, Dr. Raymond Flesh is a pediatric, she's a pediatrician and an adolescent medicine um, doc and she she's uh, we're working together on anorexia trial and I've learned a lot from her uh, and you know anorexia is our most or one of the top two most lethal uh, psychiatric disorders 10% of people will die and uh, was it 90% of the people who have it are younger than 18 and if you don't get treatment in the first couple of years, your chances of recovery are go way down. So we've been talking about it, about whether or not we should, you know, tr- study, the, you know, not whether, when that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's so that's one thing. So like anorexia is a place where I think it's really important because it's such a severe illness and it's affecting people so young. People have of course been reluctant to do this. Nobody wants to hurt a child, <laughs> and I you know this is a double-edged sword as well because you know pediatric populations you know get medications way after adults have gotten them you know like as a field mm-hmm. but that also means that they don't get exposed to the risks of soup it's a it's a challenging thing as you know the brain's still developing and it's still developing through 20 you know 25 or even beyond and so many of the modern studies have actually only taken people 25 or older 26 or older that's for a couple of reasons. One is this development thing. The other thing is people didn't want to have anyone develop bipolar in their trial. And that's when the risk, the time risk. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I agree with you. Like we know so little about this and these drugs we do know can be very potent and inducing plasticity. How that interacts with the developing brain is really a totally open question. Now, of course there are adolescents out there using psychedelics and you know, Many of them do fine, but that, that isn't that reassuring. I, mean, I guess it's a little bit reassuring, but it's not that reassuring. I think that what's probably going to happen is when the clinical need is really high. So it's all, all the thing in medicine, you know this, but we're always doing cost benefit. There's no treatment that doesn't have a risk. Even the ones we think of as very safe, sometimes people have you know bad outcome. And we basically are balancing cost and benefit all the time. And in research, it's the same, where we're like, well, we don't know exactly what the risk is here, but you know, what's the possible benefit, and you know, how can we mitigate these risks and you know, take a stepwise approach? So I suspect that what's going to happen is we're going to do more research on psychedelics. We're going to have more knowledge about how to do this. We're going to study it in young adults and show, hopefully show that that's safe. And then something like anorexia, where the need is very high and people are dying, we will Someone will do that study, and, it, and and that's how it will start. Of course, everyone's worried that all the teenagers are going to go out and use it. I, I, you know, I don't know. That's a, that's a bigger question than me. But but do I think that there are particular conditions where the cost benefit is worth it? I think so. At least to study it. Severe, just like you say, severe depression in adolescence. I mean, that's that's a common thing. Mm-hmm. Severe drug abuse, drug use disorder. That's another common thing that can happen in teenagers. If you could really, I mean, if it's true that psychedelic can be used to fix that, let's just imagine that for a second, then you could totally imagine it being worth it because those things are really bad for developing brains already, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, that's my that's my answer to that. Um, yeah, I see. I see a qu- quick question here about SSRIs. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have time to get into this. Uh, it's a big question. Um, all the trials have excluded people on SSRIs. They're like, oh, you're depressed? You can't be on SSRI to be on our trial, which actually is a huge problem. It's actually really surprising. Um, and one way, on the other way, it's not so surprising because people are worried about the SSRI and the ser- you know, it's all serotonergic and they think it's going to interact. People have been concerned about serotonin syndrome, which is what happens when you have too much serotonin. But I think the risk of that is, is very low because actually... It's never been described with psilocybin by itself or hardly hardly ever. It's like a vanishingly rare. Um, but the trials have not been done. We did a study with Reddit, amateur psychopharmacologists, and I can tell you that on Reddit, 
a lot of people talk about how when they're on an SSRI, it blunts the effects of the psychedelic. They just don't have as intense a trip or they have no trip at all. That, that is the lore, but it hasn't been shown in the study. No at the trial. No. So, you know, I, that's, that's what I can say to that. Dr. Woolley has shared, if you're interested in any, you know, finding out more about the research that his team's working on, you can visit his website. So thank you, Dr. Woolley. Thank you for everyone for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.